you have the Bible with you, you can open to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22. Look at verses 1 through 14. The text is also printed in the next page on the bulletin uh, for you. Um, so growing up, um, Christmas Eve uh, was sort of the time that we really had our big celebration with my mom's side of the family uh, at my grandparents' home, and it really shaped my imagination for what a feast is. Uh, maybe you've had a similar experience. You've got this maybe nostalgic picture of what it was like uh, growing up, <clears throat> going to the best uh, feast of the year, Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. But for me, it was Christmas Eve at my grandparents' home. As a child, uh, you're not so aware of the difficult parts, like all the bickering about who's coming and who's bringing what and why they're late and why that dish isn't ready yet. You're not aware of all that stuff, but your eyes get large when you see the soups and the meats and the cakes and even the vegetables can be exciting if they've got enough cheese or sugar on them. <clears throat> um, of course, a child can only take so much of the eating part and can't wait to get through the meal to the gift opening part. But we talked about gifts last week, so. Um, <clears throat> but uh, as I've gotten older, my imagination for, um, for good feasts has also been shaped by, uh, in particular, weddings. Weddings that I've uh, been able to attend, family weddings, friends' weddings, or uh, that I've officiated. Um, wedding feasts are this unique moment. They're joyful occasions celebrating love and union, and they share, they share something of the magic, I think, of uh, a good Christmas feast. Something of that. Uh, maybe it's just the magic of feasts in general. Feasts like these in the Bible, they're not just present everywhere in the Bible. Feasts shape the Bible from start to finish. They shape God's uh, revelation. They shape God's interactions with his people from start to finish throughout the scriptures. When Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven, more than once he likens it to a feast, even to a wedding feast, as he does in our passage. So if you want to know what God's original plan was for creating the world... If you want to know what a true picture of spiritual life with God and life with each other is meant to look like, if you want to know what our eternal destiny in the resurrection, what our life in the new heavens and the new earth will look like, it's a feast. That's what the Bible says. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we thank you for your word that uh, you've not left us in the dark in our own ignorance or left us to our own imagination. You've shaped our imagination. You've shaped our understanding of who you are and what reality is like and what we're to, to know about you and trust about you. So we pray that uh, as we listen now to your word, to Jesus' own words in this parable, that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to have a good response to who you are and what you've done for us in the gospel. Help us uh, to respond to you with faith, hope, and love, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. 
My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise Praise be to you, O Christ. So feasts shape the Bible. They shape our vision of spirituality. They shape our hope. For the future, hope for eternity. The Bible begins with an account of God's creation of the world and humanity in the space of six days. Uh, And guess what's at the climax of the final day of God's work, the climax of the sixth day, the end of Genesis chapter 1. Peter Lightheart says, God's gift of food is the climax of the six days of creation. Day six does not end with man's creation as the image of God. Or with God's command that Adam rule the earth, it ends with a menu. You can go look it up. It's at the end of Genesis 1. It ends with a menu. That's the climax. The Bible also ends with a feast. If you go to the end of the scriptures and you look at Revelation chapter 19, it's the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's the glorious consummation of our relationship with God, of eternal love, divine love, at uh, Christ's return, when he comes back into the world, is the second advent. That's what advent means, is coming. At his second coming. The appearance and the celebration of our blessed union with God, the scriptures say, it's a feast. It's a wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb. The great feast is the emblem, if you will, for everything finally becoming as it should be between God and between his people. For heaven and earth becoming one in the end, the last day, the end that's a new beginning. And feasts are everywhere in between. You got them at the beginning, you got them at the end. They're everywhere in between. Exodus 5, um, when God, I mean, it's a huge event in the life of the history of the people of Israel, uh, the, uh, the Exodus event when God sent Moses to Pharaoh. And you've all seen the cartoon probably, Let My People Go, right? Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. That's why they were let go. That's that's why God did the Exodus, so they could hold a feast to him in the wilderness. Exodus chapter 12, with the Passover, he says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You'll keep it as a feast every year. Leviticus 23, the whole liturgical calendar, the whole year, 
for the people of Israel is organized around five annual feasts, these great feasts, Passover, first fruits, weeks, trumpets, and booths, the very passage of time for their entire culture, the people of God, the very passage of time marked by religious feasts, festivals. These are times when God's people, as family, as the family of God, all the families among the family of God, come together to share the abundance of God's provision and to take care of one another in the sharing. That's explicit. To take care of one another, to invite the poor and feed the poor, etc. The messianic banquet then starts to become a picture of the future redemption, the way things will be when they're made right. The messianic banquet, the promises of God reconciling sinners to himself by his grace, fixing the relationship that we've broken through our sin. He's going to fix it through the Messiah, through the anointed one, through the Christ. And so that messianic banquet becomes a big picture for us. So Psalm 23, this is everywhere. God prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Song of Solomon, chapter 2. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Isaiah 25, as Rainy read in our Old Testament reading, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. That sounds good. That sounds really good. So it's a little wonder that the Christ would go to feasts, and he'd go to parties, and he'd talk about feasts, and he'd talk about the kingdom of God in those terms all the time. As we saw in our series on John's Gospel, which we finished up a little while ago, the whole book, all of John's Gospel, is organized around several feasts that take place in Jerusalem that Jesus is going up to. He's going up to these, these feasts that shape the, the annual calendar, the liturgical calendar of God's people in the passage of time. The Gospel of John is shaped by that, but things really get going with him, with his first miraculous sign being performed at the wedding feast in Cana when he turns water into wine showing himself to be the true master of the feast and the Lord of joy. Really the true bridegroom preparing the great banquet for his bride. And in all of these biblical feasts, there's food aplenty, there's wine aflowing, the created gifts of God given to his people for our life with him. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 4, this, this kind of thing is to be received with thanksgiving, all these kinds of food and drink, to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So it's a, it's a physical picture of this food and drink, this feast. It's a physical picture of actual food really enjoyed together. It's not just a picture of something actually spiritual. It is in itself spiritual. It's truly spiritual in all of its physicality. The meaning of us Eating food together really is a, a spiritual thing. A feast is when we partake of God's abundant provision together, not, not alone. You don't have a feast by yourself. That's not how it's supposed to be done. It's when we partake of God's abundant provision together, when we take care of one another in the sharing. Really, people are the whole point of feasts. It's the company. That's the whole point. Obviously, the food is a real meaningful part. Obviously. But really only insofar as it's something that we partake of in togetherness. 
That's, that's why the food is important, because we're partaking of it together. We can't feast every day. You know that. You know, especially a season like this, you can't feast every day. You can't go on like this. <laughs> um, but really, anytime we eat, whatever you're eating, it's spiritual because we're together. Because at the very least, we're in the company of God. Maybe you're sitting there at work, having a quick bite for lunch, and you're kind of by yourself in a workroom or something. But, um, but really, it's something we partake of together because we're in the company of God, always. You can't get away from Him. You can't have a feast. I mean, you can't have a meal apart from the company of God. God Himself has no need of food. And he doesn't eat with us, but he is with us. He is with us. So eating, just like everything else we do, is, is always a time of togetherness. It's always a time of togetherness, even when there's no other human company in the room, but especially when there's other human company in the room. It's really a time for togetherness. It's a spiritual thing because of our togetherness with God and because of our togetherness with each other. Eating is a spiritual thing. <clears throat> It's always more than just nourishment for our bodies. Uh, Robert Capon has a great book, The Supper of the Lamb, little book. You should all read it. He says, to be sure, food keeps us alive, but that is only its smallest and most temporary work. Its eternal purpose is to furnish our sensibilities against the day when we shall sit down at the heavenly banquet and see how gracious the Lord is. So what we celebrate at Christmas is God becoming flesh, the incarnation, the enfleshment, God becoming a human being, so that he could sit down at a table and eat together with us as one of us, the Son of God, coming into the world, the bridegroom at the great wedding feast. We celebrate Christmas because that's when God came into the world to be company for us and so that we could be his company. The problem is God's people didn't want his company. God's own people didn't want his company when he came. That's what Jesus is really highlighting with this parable that we'll get into here, the, the kingdom of heaven. It's like this royal wedding feast. Can you imagine being invited to a royal wedding feast? It's like that, the grandeur of which we're really only left to imagine because Jesus doesn't take time to describe it. He assumes it. He assumes you'd pour some of your imagination into what this means, this royal wedding feast that you're invited to. He doesn't take time to describe it. He talks about, he talks about the company, the people who are invited, the people of Israel, long prepared to be the bride of Christ. They're invited, but they wouldn't come, it says. They wouldn't come. Some paid no attention and went off to attend to other things that they consider to be more important. The rest seized the servants who were inviting him to the feast. This is a picture of the prophets. The prophets of God sent to prepare Christ's way before him. To prepare the hearts of the people. And they treated them shamefully and they killed them. They killed the people who invited them to the, the great wedding feast. When you thought your holiday gatherings were bad, here's the Savior, God, holding forth a feast for the ages with himself, and he's rejected, and he's scorned. And it isn't the food that people don't like. I can't eat those things, so I'm not going to come. 
It's never that. It's the company. That's why they don't come. They don't want to be with the one who's throwing the feast. But instead of scrapping his plans altogether, the the king invited others then. He invited others to his son's wedding feast. He said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So when Jesus was telling this parable, he was indicting the people of Israel. It's his own people, his own people that he loves. He came into the world for, to be one of. These people just like us. But they'd refused to come to him for joy. That's who he's indicting. People who didn't want to come and be in his company. He didn't think that was very fun. And he's speaking of the gospel message then, the invitation ultimately to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he's talking about it going out to the main roads, the highways and byways, another passage puts it, right? Going out to all nations and all peoples, gathering company for the big party. That's the picture of the gospel going out here. Gathering company from every tribe, tongue, and nation for the big party. That doesn't mean that the Jewish people who rejected Jesus were particularly bad people. So that Jesus had to go out and find instead some good people for his party. He says that the wedding hall will be filled with both bad and good. That's explicit. Anyone who comes is welcome only because God is gracious. Only because God is merciful. Only because God freely loves sinners. And that's what's pictured with the last part of the parable when Uh, Actually, the king kicked out someone for not being dressed properly. It sounds a little strange to us. Uh, But the picture is of someone who they tried to get into the party. They tried to enter uh, through some illegitimate way. It wasn't through the front door where all the other guests were coming in, filing in, not the authorized way where he would have properly received a wedding garment given along with uh, the rest of the guests. Revelation chapter 19, speaking of the wedding supper of the Lamb, says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So the bride's wedding garments, if you are able to enter into the great wedding feast, and you're welcome, you're all invited, you're all welcome, but the bride's wedding garments, they're given to her. They're given to her. We're prepared for eternal union with the beloved. As a gift of God's grace, we're made beautiful in his sight through his atoning work. That's the message of all the scriptures, especially the gospels. We're made ready. We're made fit. We're made beautiful through Christ's atoning work. The wedding hall will be filled with guests who don't deserve to be there. There's nobody going to be at the great wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb, who's like, yep, yeah, this is where I belong. I totally deserve to be here. It'll be filled with guests who don't deserve to be there, who, yet who respond to God's gospel invitation, the message of grace, trusting Jesus Christ, not trusting themselves, not trusting their own righteousness, trusting Christ clothed in Him, Scriptures say, 
in the garments of his righteousness, and then we'll be welcomed. And that means you, you, you're invited. You're invited right now to the feast, and you're invited to come freely, but you're welcome. Your welcome comes at a great price. It costs Jesus a great price because you need wedding garments because what you're wearing simply won't do. Right? And I'm not just talking about suits and dresses and ties. I'm talking about what God sees when he looks at you. God who looks on the heart. Apart from Jesus Christ, when God looks at you, he sees sin and rebellion, which his very being opposes. Apart from Jesus Christ, we're all clothed in unrighteousness. And none of us make very good company at the great feast. But God wanted the feast. He's made it ready. So he sent his son into the world to be the only righteous human being who ever lived to give you the garment of his righteousness and to take your filthy rags from you on himself to be burned in the holy fire of God's wrath on the cross. Done away with forever. Jesus allowed himself to be bound hand and foot and cast into the outer darkness so that you would be welcome in the light and the warmth of the party. He chose to be with us as one of us. And by his sacrifice, he made it possible for us to be with him so that we could all sit down together at table and have a proper feast. So in large part, we're waiting. In large part, we're waiting for the future feast. It's been promised to us at the resurrection. But each week, we're invited to a foretaste of it right here. Right here at the Lord's Supper at his table. It's a real time of fellowship. It's a real time of communion with God at a meal together. It's one of the two great sacraments given by Jesus to his people. Can you imagine it? One of the things that... He commanded his church to do in perpetuity. Get together and eat together. Do it in remembrance of him. Do it in a taste and see that the Lord is good. Do it, as Robert Capon said, to, to furnish your sensibilities against the day when you'll sit down at the heavenly banquet and see how gracious the Lord is. It won't just be a matter of faith anymore at that point. It'll be a matter of sight. And even though the great feasts of the Christian calendar, they're optional, right? Feasts like Christmas and Easter, sort of big ones for a lot of us. The Bible doesn't command us to do those things. It says those are optional. But they can help us to commemorate and commune and prepare in similar ways. So, So go and feast. Go eat good food. And drink good drink and receive it all and enjoy it with thanksgiving and eat and drink together, together with one another and together with God and reflect on this God who has made feasts such a big part of his revelation. Let your imagination for your life with him be shaped by the best feasts you can imagine and celebrate those spiritual connections with your company. Talk about that at your Christmas feasts. Invite people from the highways and the byways to your party. Take care of one another in the sharing of God's abundance. Show grace to one another as grace has been shown to you by the King. 
And look with good hope to the day when you will dine with Jesus Christ, who is God become flesh, so that he could feast with us and us with him. As the angel said in Revelation 19, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we confess that our imaginations uh, about who you are and what it will be like to live with you forever, uh, they're generally not up to the task. We're thankful that you've given us such things as feasts. You've called your attention, our attention to them uh, so many times throughout the scriptures. You've given us this weekly practice of communion at your table to prepare us for life uh, with you, eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth when we see you face to face and we're united with you and we can celebrate our love with you in your presence forever and ever. We pray that that image, that picture, uh, would uh, come alive in our hearts and in our minds, that we would be aware of the fact that uh, it cost your son's life in order to prepare this table for us. Uh, You sent him into the world so that he could come to a table to us and uh, to be with us so we could be with you, and uh, the welcome cost him his very life because we're sinners. So we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your invitation. We want to respond with faith and trust and thanksgiving and love. We pray that you would enable us to do so through the power of your spirit now and forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.